One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, everybody, it's Mike. Before we get into this episode of the show, I need to share some sad news with you. Pete Fullerton was a guest on the show a few weeks back. He and I were discussing early morning rain. Pete passed away about a week ago after a short battle with cancer. Pete was just an amazing musician and an amazing human being. He played great in Wii 5. He played great after Wii 5. He and I played music together many, many times. Uh, he played at my wedding and he played at my dad's memorial service. Truly a larger than life man, ran a nonprofit organization that helped the poor and the needy and the homeless for many, many years after he left the music business and was as good a friend, as good a man as anyone I've ever met. He will be missed. His contribution to Gordon's music and to my life uh, is absolutely amazing. On with the show. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a, a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they called Gichigumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty, that good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song, brought to you by the Western Skies Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow fan, Martin Brandt from San Jose, California. Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Uh, how did you first get into Gordon's music? Well, the uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, I think I was about 11 years old when the song came out, and it was just playing on the radio in the mornings for a few successive days as I was getting ready for school. And my parents would have the radio on, a combination of news and music common to, I think, AM radio at the time. And I remember that very haunting guitar, the main theme. And how it stuck with me one day and how I looked forward to hearing it again the next day because I'd heard it a couple days in a row and the next day it didn't come on. And so that sort of piqued my interest in it. And a day or two afterwards, it came on in another circumstance, maybe in the afternoon on the way home from school. And so that's the moment when I first gave the song a real listen. Oh, here's that song with that really great guitar in it. What, what is it? What's it all about? And I remember not, you know, when you're 11 years old, a lot of adult words just sort of sail over your head, you know? Yeah. But I remember distinctly hearing that line came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I thought at the time that it was a refrain because it stood out so much to me. I thought that at the time, this is before I would buy the record, that uh, every verse ended with this um, because it just sort of stood out to me in my memory. So that was my first introduction to Gordon Lightfoot and obviously to, to the song that we're discussing tonight. 
That's perfect. Um, so you really, that's called starting at the top, really, because Lightfoot considers <laughs> that to be the, the greatest song he's ever written. What do you like about Lightfoot's music in general? You know, there's a great episode of Seinfeld where there's a, a misunderstanding about Gordon Lightfoot. And Elaine says something like, I just love Edmund Fitzgerald's voice. Oh <laughs> and you know, that's the great refrain. That's always that's always been the great refrain about Gordon Lightfoot. Everybody says, oh, that voice. And that voice really is unique and special. It's it's a powerful and beautiful voice. It's It's so rich and mellow, you know, compared to so much of the sort of higher pitched songs that you hear from, especially in pop music today. But I think in general, you know, pop music seems to favor people who are singing in a higher register, maybe because it gives itself to histrionics more, you know, you can, you can get, you can get more theatrical with it that way. But Gordon Lightfoot was always very secure with the voice range that he has, and he made the most of it. He's got one of the more resonant voices in rock. Yeah, it really is great. And I don't know exactly what his formal vocal training was. I mean, he had been singing before people since he was eight years old. So right. I, I don't know how many times he actually took vocal lessons or singing lessons, but it's a great instrument. And if he hasn't taken vocal lessons, then, you know, it just says that much more about his natural ability. Yeah, Marty, how many times have you seen Lightfoot live? And was there a performance that you thought was particularly outstanding? Well, I've seen him about five or six times over the years. The first time was the one that stands out. I was maybe 13 years old at the time. And of course, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald had, you know, quickly ascended to the top of my song rankings in terms of favorites. Mm -hmm. And my Aunt Molly uh, decided uh, as a gift to take my brothers and me to the San Francisco War Memorial Opera House to go see Gordon Lightfoot. Okay. And the whole weekend was really epic. I mean, it, there are other stories involved in that weekend that have nothing to do with the concert, but the concert itself was just wonderful. And we were maybe in the back row of the balcony. We were <laughs> about oh, as far wow. away from Gordon Lightfoot as you could get. You uh -huh. And <laughs> I just remember watching, you know, with such intensity, every single thing that I could get about the show, you know, his shirt, you know, sort of a Western shirt with kind of, um, you know, those, those uh, little, that piping that comes down and, yeah. and, um, you know, seeing for the first time, a guitarist switching guitars and wondering what's that about, you know, why, mm -hmm. why, why does he change guitar? What do you need more than one guitar for? And seeing the band, I remember there was a little joke he did at one point. He says, I'd like to introduce the members of the band. And then he introduced the members of the band to one another and they all shook hands on stage. Oh, God. Everybody had a great, great That's laugh. Cute. You know? Okay. And, um, and of course, getting to hear my favorite song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, was the highlight of the evening for me. So, yeah, I owe that one to my Aunt Molly and my brothers who were there. And uh, we just had a great, great time. Sometimes uh, the one that stands out is going to be the first time, you know. Have you ever met Lightfoot? Oh, no, I wish I had. How about you? Have you? No, I never have. And sadly, I doubt I will at this point because right. he's getting on in years. And I don't know sure how many is. more, uh, you know, meet and greets he does when he's on tour. But if he's yeah. listening to this, maybe he'll let me come backstage <laughs> and meet him. But, I know. saw him a couple of years ago in San Jose and mm -hmm. uh, and his voice is uh, not what it once was, but he's still out there giving it his best. And 
you know, I just think that it's, it's such a gift to be able to do that for a living, to, to go out on stage and play music and make people happy with it. To me, if you can claim to have done that with your life, then you won. You won at life. Yeah. And, and he really is. And he's been doing this for so long and he's come through a lot of health problems. And now right. he's recuperating from a surgery and he's, I think, going to be back on the road in early 2022. So the legacy is just immense that he's able to, you know, have touched so many people with his music over the years. Well, then you and I should make it a point. If he's going to go on the road in 2022, we need to make sure that to hang out backstage after the show. There you go. Find the, find the tour bus and just wait there. Be one of the hangers on and we see if we can get our shot. Right. Yeah. There you go. And Hey, why not? We got nothing yeah. to lose. So now let's talk about this song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which for my listeners, it's the music you've been hearing at the beginning of every episode of the show. And I wanted to talk about, you know, what it means to each one of us. Now, you talked about hearing it as a young teenager uh, or adolescent, and it was very impactful, you know, because, of course, it was a number one hit at the time. I mean, for me... I think just the fact that it's a story song and it kind of has a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And it's based in historical fact, as we'll see a little later on tonight. There are some liberties that Lightfoot took. Most of them are very understandable. They're poetic ones. Is there something that you can put your finger on about why you like that song in particular, besides what we've already talked about tonight? Yes. You mentioned that it's a storytelling song or the, that is a story song. And what's important to me about it is that the music tells the story just as much as the words do. It adds so much. The creation, the production of that song is just amazing. And we could talk about the different musical accents that occur in that song, I think, as we consider the lyrics, too. Because the lyrics, of course, are incredible. But also the fact that he created this song with all these different layers of instrumentation to make you wonder what's going to happen next, to keep you going from verse to verse, even despite the fact that every verse is pretty much the same. There's no departure. There's no, you know, portion of the song where they go off to, you know, what do they call it? The relative minor, which is the middle often, yeah. often what they do in, in pop music. There's nothing like that. It's the same structure, every chorus or excuse me, every verse. Mm-hmm. And yet it maintains your attention. And I think part of it is is the choices, the musical choices they made when they created it, when they recorded it. And if you think about just how, I don't want to say that the band was sparse, but it's only five musicians, yeah. you know, and the fact that they were able to do that in the 1970s and create such a full sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were all very skilled, you know, musicians. We're going to talk more about that. Yeah, you you make a good point about the music not overpowering the words and vice versa. Yeah. Now, let's say that you could listen to this song in any setting, driving, sitting at home, what time of the day or at night would it be? Or would the very best time would be for you to go back when you were 12 or 13 years old and just listening to it for the first time on the radio? I think the presence of a large body of water would help, you know, <laughs> being, being, at a, being at a, on the shore somewhere with a nice view of the water, perhaps a comforting cup of coffee in my hand and, mm. and uh, the wind and the waves outside, the, the sense of security you have when you are protected, when you're sheltered from that, because the song points out the, the cruelty 
of the waves and and of the weather. And so sometimes I like to feel safe and secure. And that's a song that does it for me. Yeah. I think for me, it would not necessarily be near a body of water, but it would be on a cloudy day. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's and good not, too. Ne- not necessarily cold, not necessarily rainy, but overcast. Yeah. And probably in the late fall or the early winter. So a little later on, we're recording this in early October, but a little yeah. bit later on in the year, because that's where I first heard it. Well, I was living know. in London at the time mm-hmm. and it was you know, I think it may have been raining, but it was definitely cloudy. And I had gone out and bought a Gordon Lightfoot's greatest hits cassette and was listening to it on this teeny tiny little speaker system. This is in the late eighties and just being really taken that that was a very faint inkling of what the weather was like on Lake Superior back in 1975. I think we're both talking about, you know, similar setting, just different details of that setting, you know, where we want to hear this. Definitely. So what do you know about the events of the song and what do you know about how Lightfoot's writing process was? Well, I don't remember the story uh, of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That is when it actually happened. It sank on November 10th, 1975, I believe, mm-hmm. which would be two days before my 11th birthday. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I wasn't exactly watching the news with my parents or anything like that. And so um, it wasn't for a couple of years when I discovered the song that I began to uh, find out about the historical event itself. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, knowing about the events, I've gotten a few books over the years about shipwrecks on Lake Michigan and Lake mm-hmm. Superior and iron ore boats. I think we've all benefited from the internet in this respect because you know you can actually just put in a Google search for the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and and find some in most cases some very um, accurate information. And so you so you can find corrections to the song you know, as far as the song's liberties are concerned. There are numerous documentaries on the Edmund Fitzgerald that you can watch on YouTube now. And so if anybody's interested in that kind of thing, I would point them in that direction. The thing that blows my mind about the ship itself, and you're right, that there's a lot of information out there about what happened, is that this ship was 700 feet long, 70 feet wide, which is a structure I can't even get my head around. And in one minute from the time that it went over, you know, it had sunk under the water of Lake Superior. The pride of the American side. Yes. And that is a line that apparently gets a whole lot of cheers when he plays up in either Michigan or Wisconsin or really? Ohio. Yeah. From American audiences and from Canadian wow. audiences, obviously be different. And he said, because this is a, a real life, uh, you know, resonance for him. He said, and I'm quoting here, these sorts of things have happened on the Great Lakes for many years. And I thought I had another shipwreck song in me after having done Marie Christine years before. And I'll be talking about that probably in January. I'm proud it's been written. It's been a very educational and interesting experience for sure. I've gotten to meet a lot of the people who were related to the men on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Periodically, they have functions, which I attend whenever I can. It's been a real life experience for me. So let's talk a little bit about the lyrics. Now, this is a very long song. We're going to go through the whole lyrics, but we will not 
emphasize things that aren't particularly relevant to you know our exploration of it. But the legend lives on from the Chippewa on down. Now, I don't know anything about the indigenous tribes that lived in Canada, but this could be a geographical reference from the regions of Canada north of the Great Lakes down to below the Great Lakes, or it could also be a chronological thing that the legend was born amongst the Chippewa people and it's been passed down through oral tradition. I don't know if you have an angle on that at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it has to do with the Chippewa people and the tribes and the geographical region that they occupied. So that it, it lived from there and further south. That's I, I kind of took it that way. So the Chippewa on down could be chronologically and it could also be geographically. Yeah. So that everybody, all, all the native peoples who lived around the Great Lakes shared this vision, this interpretation of Gichigumi, the, the, the big one. Yes, and that that term means big seawater. Yeah. And although the original language would probably have pronounced it Gichigami or Kichigami. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read, you know, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Hiawatha poem is where you first right. hear the, ta- the term Gichigumi. Well, and, Longfellow gave us a lot of inaccurate. Yes. <laughs> it, it was poetic license. I like, <laughs> right. we'll not skewer the man. Don't anymore. go to Longfellow for your history. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> but that is the where the popular cultural reference would have been, right. you know, right. to that. We'll be right back to our discussion with Martin Brandt about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk Podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. And I thought that was just sort of a spiritual thing that they were talking about, you know, the the spirits will never rise and things Mm -hmm. like that. And it's actually a physical thing, you know, that the lake doesn't give up its dead. Do you know anything about the scientific aspect of that? Well, no, but I, I just know that you won't be found. You know, you you go beneath those waves and that's all she wrote. Mm-hmm. The lake does not give up her dead. She is a very jealous god, I suppose you could say, you know. And once the lake decides she's had enough of you, she'll take you and keep you. Yeah, and that is true in a, a storytelling sense, but it's also scientifically accurate because when someone drowns, After a few days, the body will float to the surface because there's bacteria that are decomposing the body and they're producing bubbles. Lake Superior at that time of year is too cold to allow those bacteria to thrive, which is why the bodies were never found. Wow. You know, to this day, we still have not found them. Now, we're not going to get into anything conspiratorial. Okay, these men had drowned and they're dead and gone. But I thought that was it was an interesting level 
you know, to the story of, you know, the, the lake never gives up its dead. Right. Yeah. So it has a scientific explanation for something that is really kind of a, a mythical outlook. You know, yes. you, you look at the lake and you, and this is what we've learned about the lake, the Chippewa people, everyone around the lake does not give up her dead. And yeah. it just turns out that there happens to be a, a scientific explanation for this mythology. Yeah. It's both it's science and mythology. You're absolutely and I use right. And I use mythology as a you know, as, as, as a positive thing. Right, right. It's not a pejorative. Right. right. With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. I have never completely understood that line because it sounds like what they're saying is, okay, they had massively overloaded this boat. And so when it was sailing back, it would have sunk no matter what the weather would have been. So what's this talking about? Well, I always just thought it was, this is the load she was carrying, 26,000 tons. Okay. And, you know, it's 26,000 tons greater than zero. And, um, and this is what her cargo, what she was made to be able to hold. Nothing to suggest that it was overloaded, but that, that she was fully loaded. And in fact, that term comes up in the next line, I think, or right. the next couple of lines that she left fully loaded for Cleveland. And so her load, I think it's kind of a poetic way of telling us a statistic. You know, she could carry 26,000 tons. Yeah, it's just when I think of that, I'm just thinking, if the Edmund Fitzgerald has nothing, no cargo, it still weighs something. So right. if you, yeah. you know, the weight of the ship with no cargo in it has got to be tons and tons and tons. Mm. So when I first read that, I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, of course this thing is going to go straight to the bottom. Yeah, um, the, but, Those ships are, ships are usually weighed in terms of the amount of dis, uh, water they displace. Yeah. So I think we're just strictly talking about her cargo abilities. Right. And that makes much more sense now. You know, but when I first heard it, I thought, you know, the math doesn't work out here. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales in November came early. And that is just poetry. Yeah. I mean, that's just, he's just setting the scene there. That's the first sense you get that you're in the presence of something special. Yeah. And it's also kind of the, this foreboding, you know, right. The, you know, this, this isn't going to end well. Right. In um, fact, he, <laughs> that's another thing that's so great about this is that he tells you in the first verse it's a spoiler. He he spoils it for you in the first verse, but he knows it's so damn good that he's going to keep on going and you're going to listen. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of people by that time in the audience had either read the Newsweek story or had seen it yeah. on the news or something like that. So this was not headline news. But again, you know, he was setting the tone for yeah. what this as if the music hadn't done it by that time. Right. The ship was the pride of the American side coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. Well, that's the first part we get that is not entirely accurate mm. because lake freighters that carry iron ore pellets, which is what the Edmund Fitzgerald was carrying, don't have anything to do with mills directly. They're loaded at ore docks, not at mills. So coming back from some mill in Wisconsin it may have been coming back from Wisconsin, some port in Wisconsin, but it was not coming from a mill in a way is we're really kind of nitpicking, but you should probably find out where she was coming from and see if it fits rhythmically with the rhyme. Cause maybe Wisconsin just fits the rhythm. Yeah. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most with a crew and good captain well seasoned. What do you know about the captain okay, that was in the Ernest? Ernest yes. McSorley. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I only know him by name as I, I know him sim simply as the captain 
who uh, was at the helm when the Fitzgerald sank. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about his his background or you know his experience? It says he was well seasoned. Clearly, yeah, he'd he wasn't. been on the lakes for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think he commanded a whole bunch of ships before mm -hmm. he was, you know, joined the Edmund Fitzgerald. So this was not a greenhorn. This is the Fitzgerald. Who, yeah. And the Fitzgerald was the biggest ship on the lake at the time or yeah. on the lakes. Mm -hmm. um, there are, have since then been ships that have gone bigger than, than she was, but, but at the time she was the biggest one on the lake. Concluding some terms with a couple steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. That is True, but it's misleading because mm. the ship was not going to deposit the iron ore in Cleveland. It was going to Zug Island, which is a place near Detroit. Mm. And then it was going to unload the iron ore. Okay. And then it was going to go to Cleveland and it was going to spend the rest of the winter there. Okay. And then it was going to go back out, I guess, in, sometime in the spring or maybe the late winter right after the storms. They, they put all those ships in harbor throughout the late fall and in the winter months. Mm -hmm. And they should, yeah, you know, because of the reasons that we're talking about here. And later that night, when the ship's bell rang, could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, this beautiful poetry that he's working into this. Yeah, the building it up, the sense of foreboding, uh, the sense of tension. He's doing it all. He's doing everything that a good storyteller should. And the rhetorical question, you know, could it be the North Wind? Right. They didn't feel like, I can almost hear like Paul Vries's voice, you know, saying that, or some some really great voice artist saying that. The wind in the wires may a tattletale sound, and a wave broke over the railing. That is my favorite part of the lyrics, right there. You know, this tattletale sound. You know, the ha 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 ha. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you shouldn't have been out here, and the wave breaking over, which is the real reason that the ship sank. Um, and, and two things happen musically at this moment. So one is the drums kick in, and they come in at the exact perfect moment. Mm -hmm. Boom, 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 and after that last beat is is the verse, the wind and the wires. And then after he gets that line, a wave broke over the railing. We have that wonderful slide guitar. I, who is it playing that? Pee Wee Charles. I think that's Pee Wee Charles, yeah. yes. He, where he he just brings it down. It, it, I don't know that it goes more than a full step from one note to the next, or maybe a, a step and a half. But he he sort of elongates it and takes it over the course of, I don't know whether it's one measure or two, but he sure takes his time with it and it builds up that tension even more. And that's an example of what I mean about the, the song, the music telling the story. If it's written in a 6-8 time, then I think it would be two measures. And the thing about the pedal steel, for years, I didn't think it was pedal steel. I thought it was organ. Oh, really? Because it really does kind of sound like it, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that it could be an organ. And well, I, it merges with an organ later on in the same verse. So it goes up to its high point, and then there is an organ that sort of cascades over it. And so the mixture of the two is really powerful. Yeah, they don't list an organ in the summertime dream personnel. Oh, so maybe it's that. maybe they then I'm making the same mistake that you were that. 
that I thought it was an organ, but maybe it's just that pedal steel getting a different tone that sounds, as you said, like an organ. Yeah, there is a Moog synthesizer, but uh-huh. I think that may have been what Peewee was playing the steel through yeah. to create that effect. But there's no keyboardist, no organ that's mentioned on that. And okay. Lightfoot wasn't known for using those kind of instruments you know, uh-huh. too much anyway. And every man knew, as the captain did too, t'was the witch of November comes stealing. This is horror movie material, you know. Yeah, and then Pee Wee Charles goes up to the high register with the, the slide again. Yeah. Yeah, or however long it does. The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane west wind. And now by this time, Barry Keene is really, you know, laying down some heavy drum fills. And I wanted to stop here for a second. Marty, have you ever been in the North Woods or been on the Great Lakes? Have you ever experienced any weather like this? Well, I spent... Most of my life in California. <laughs> so have I. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, where the the weather people get excited over a tenth of an inch of rain. You know, there's, there's like a, there's, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have storm tracker, you know, yeah. <laughs> storm mm-hmm. tracker. We're, we'll be, t- we'll be letting you know, you know, mm-hmm. stay tuned. So no, I've never been in weather like that. We did live in Omaha, Nebraska for a year when I was about seven years old. And so I've experienced cold and perhaps wind like that, but a storm like that is just the stuff of my imagination. And it's one of my great fantasies is to visit the Great Lakes states um, and to experience those lakes both from the shore and from the water. Probably not during a November, though. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming you, they would even let you do that. Right. I can't even, I mean, I've been in some really bad tempests, but they were down in the tropics. So we didn't get anywhere near that type of cold down in Central America. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been in some pretty scary storms, but nothing like this. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. A complete invention, of course. Of course. Yes. And then at 7 p.m., a main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The families of the of the men who died were very much hurt unintentionally by the line about um, the hatchways at 7 p.m. The main hatchways caved in mm-hmm. um, because it implied that they had died as a result of some kind of negligence on their own part. Although nobody knows absolutely for sure what caused the wreck. Right. It was just in 2010 when we discovered that there were no hatchways that had given in because that would have implied human error and to his credit uh gordon lightfoot changed the verse when he sings it in concert now because it was the last thing he wanted on earth was to hurt the families of these men who he was striving to commemorate yeah and he is given all the royalties from that song to those families and to the foundation that they probably have there So Lightfoot, although he has never changed the copyrighted lyrics in concert, he always says at 7 p.m. It grew dark. It was then he said, fellas, it's been good to know you. That's a good move. Yeah. And it Uh, fits very well poetically. Yeah. It's it's hard to understand, I think, how much grief people still carry over this event and how how much they feel still. Mm -hmm. To this day, yeah, they're still with us, and the loss is a very um, painful one to them to this day. And I think Gordon Lightfoot has done a really 
successful sort of balancing act between telling a story and acknowledging the feelings of these people. And you can only give them credit for that. Absolutely. And picking up on that, the captain wired in, he had water coming in and the good ship and crew was in peril. Again, something that was used as poetic license, because we do have recordings, somebody has recordings of what McSorley was saying. In the last couple of minutes before the ship sank, he said that he and the crew were holding their own. He didn't mention anything about water coming in. He didn't say anything about them being in peril, although I'm sure the thought crossed his mind that we need help. How on earth could they get any help? I mean, what could anybody do? you know, even if they had been able to make it out to the ship. Right. And then, and later that night when his lights went out of sight came the wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, not much later because the ship sank in less than a minute. Just disappeared. Exactly. And his lights went out of sight. This is assuming anybody could have seen it, you know, and because it's right in the middle of Lake Superior. We'll be right back to our discussion with Martin Brandt about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But first... Stepping away from folk music here for a second. When you're not listening to the music of Gordon Lightfoot, are you a fan of true crime, cults, paranormal experiences, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then take a listen to Sinister Story Hour, a podcast focusing on macabre and monstrous events in the recent past and the not-so-recent. Hostess Stephanie Lynn tells true stories of events that are ghastly, gruesome, but most of all, great fun. That's Sinister Story Hour, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to Carefree Highway Revisited. Something I also want to mention... That's when I think we have the synthesizer coming in. Who's who is that? Gene Martinek. Yeah, um, doing. There's this sort of, you know, yes, and it's and it's very faint, but it 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 sends this sort of sense of electricity into that verse and adds to the danger, the struggle to survive in the storm that's being described to us by the cook. And so that's yet another example, I think, of Gordon Lightfoot using the music to tell the story just as much as the word. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about that, but you know, that is really, I've heard keyboard and patterns like that in other contexts where they really, yeah. it's really an evocative thing. It is, And so it's something that was kind of mentioned in the credits kind of as an afterthought um, that the Moog synthesizer, which may be because it was fairly new stuff, new technology. It had. Yeah. Really and, well, been, and I think, I, I think he was not part of the band per se, you know, part of the, the studio the group that, tours with him so right right that very what might be right he was probably a session guy yeah then the music really quiets down and it's more mournful it's more personal and then it's the volume's going to go up a little bit uh, later on does anyone know where the love of god goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours and it's beautiful rhetorical stuff and to me this is the most suspenseful part that The crew has got to be on board. They know they're in bad shape. The boat hasn't sunk yet, but it looks like it will be. And the crew knows we can't be that far from shore, you know, because these are sailors who have been back and forth on this lake all the time. So they probably realize we just need to get a little bit farther and that just that every minute they're wondering, will we make it? Will we make it? Well, of course, they don't make it. 
Yeah, and the verse goes on. Searchers all say they'd have made Whitefish Bay if they'd put 15 more miles behind her. And so we've we sort of jumped now to the post-sinking phase. Yeah. And all we know is that this massive ship has just disappeared, you know. 15 more miles. Now, I'm not a sailor, and I can't even imagine how long that would have taken. But knowing the size of Lake Superior... I mean, when you look at where they were coming from and what their destination was, you think to yourself how tragic they were pretty close to have put in you know, some sort of shelter, you know, at Whitefish Bay. I don't have a map in front of me, but you know, 15 miles. I mean, that's just it's a, a heartbreaker. 15 miles in those conditions might simply have been at that point, whatever it was that sank her 15 miles turns out to be a great distance you know yeah. so on, on one hand it feels like oh they are so close and yet on the other hand whatever it was that caused the sinking uh, made it so far you know yeah yeah it adds a layer of sadness for yeah. me you know about the whole thing they might have split up or they might have capsized they may have broke deep and took water now he was writing this not long after the event Um, so we don't know, or he didn't know at that point how, you know, what all the causes had been. So he was saying they might've, they might've, they might've now we're pretty sure that it was the waves they split up. Well, we don't know about that. They might've capsized. We think that they, the the ship rolled over on its side because of the waves may have broke deep and took water. Well, we know that is not the case, but it's a nice way of continuing the narrative out of relative ignorance because Gordon didn't know, you know, in 1975, any more than anybody else knew, right. You know what the cause was and all that remains is the faces and the names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. Fantastic. He could have ended the song right there. He could have. And someone after the record came out, one of his producers said, Hey, we want to make Edmund Fitzgerald the single from Summertime Dream. And he said, okay, well, I know you need to cut it down, but you can only cut down the instrumental parts. You can't cut any of the lyrics. And so they got rid of some of the instrumental parts and it was a couple of weeks later, I think it was number one around the world. That's a miracle. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Now, the next verse doesn't seem to add a whole lot to the narrative. I think it's more kind of meta, you know, backing away, you know, and talking about, you know, the Great Lakes. Lake Huron rolls, Superior sings in the rooms of her ice water mansion. Old Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. The islands and bays are for sportsmen. And farther below, Lake Ontario takes in what Lake Erie can send her. And the iron boats go as the mayor Mariners all know with the gales of November remembered. Marty, why do you think he put this verse in? Because it doesn't really push the narrative forward anymore. That to me is the great mystery of this song. What is up with that verse? And I think the answer is that Gordon Lightfoot knew it was too damn good to cut. It does not advance the narrative. It, it could also be a suitable ending to the song. The iron boats go, as the Mariners all know, with the gales of November remembered fade out. But I think he must have known that the song needed a different ending, something more solid. But that those lines are just so poetic. The rooms of her ice water mansion, oh, that kills me every time I hear it. Old Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. It doesn't advance the story, but it puts you in the place. It takes you there. It makes you, if you're a California kid living in the burbs in the 70s, 
watching Love Boat and Fantasy Island. <laughs> it takes you someplace that matters, you know, someplace that has some kind of spiritual power. You know, the native peoples were very wise to understand these phenomena as having sort of a consciousness and 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 sort of knowing them as some kind of conscious force that they lived with. And I think he gives us a sense of that in this verse. It's just spectacular. Yeah. And I love the poetic quality of it, but it is mysterious because the story's pretty much been told at this point. So I wonder if he maybe when he was writing the lyrics, maybe he realized, okay, well, we need to bring it back down to earth in more ways than one. Uh, as opposed to just saying, okay, well, you know, this is what happens in all the Great Lakes. So he's setting a scene after the the tale has been told, which brings us to the last verse. In a musty old hall in Detroit, they prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. Well, the actual name of the church is the Mariner's Church of Detroit. It's not the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. I'll take note of that. So when I visit it, I'll I'll go to the right place. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, don't look around for the one that he names because it's not there. Years later, a parishioner of the church informed Lightfoot in some setting, you know, the church is not musty because <laughs> that kind of implies that nobody goes there. You she know? was a member of the vestry, no doubt. Oh, no, no doubt. Yes. You know, she cleaned the place up. Okay. So now he says in a rustic old hall. in Rustic. Detroit. I bet yeah. you it's rustic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would be disappointed if I went there and didn't find some glass. Stained glass windows. Stained yeah. glass. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald and then picks up with, you know, the legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they called Gichigumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early and then we're out. A perfect coda to the way he introduced the song, you know, yeah. that that's the solid ending I was talking about. You know. And it is a much more satisfying ending. You know, I think so. The song was originally on Summertime Dream, and then apparently Lightfoot re recorded it for Gord's Gold 2, which is his second uh, greatest hits compilation. I have not heard the re recorded version. Have you? No, I haven't. I I don't have Gord. I have Gord's Gold, the first one. Yeah. And then Summertime Dream was the first LP I ever bought. Oh, Uh, first I bought the single, which back in those days cost 99 cents. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I think I was unsatisfied with the single probably because it was shortened. Uh, and I knew that it, that it was longer on the LP. So I saved up all my bread and I went to Jimco, which was a store we had back then. And I got it at their record section for four ninety nine. Oh and, gosh. And, and, I, and I, I still have you- it. I bet you, you and I went to the same Jemco, you know, because we were both living in the South Bay at the time. Yeah. Um, and then just the sales and charting, and of course, this was released as a single, but the yeah. the statistics really speak for themselves. Number 27 on the Australian KMR, number one on Canadian RPM top singles, number one on Canadian RPM adult contemporary, mm-hmm. number one on Canadian RPM country. Although I, this doesn't strike me particularly as a country song. Well, it's got pedal steel in it, so they. It, it does. Much, it know? does. But, you know, I don't. I don't know if that is the jump that they were making. But anyway, yeah. uh, number nine on U.S. Billboard Easy Listening. Number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Number one on the U.S. Cashbox Top 100. And at the year end, number twelve on the Canada Top Singles. Number thirty-six on Joel Whitburn's Pop Annual, and number twenty-two on the U.S. Cashbox. 
Woo. I yeah. mean, that is an for a song about a shipwreck for a song about a shipwreck. Yeah. yeah. And something that would have been more appropriate in 1850s Ireland, <laughs> you know, than yeah. the 1970s North America. And I think it says so much about the production and it says so much about his skill as a writer and about the skill that the band had. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. I watched the Grammys that year because uh, Gordon was nominated for best song, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in those days, you couldn't see much of your pop music heroes except when somebody on TV decided that you could, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I saw a glimpse of in, in the audience when they read the winners and somebody else won. I don't remember who. And I think that's the last time I ever watched the Grammys. If I'm not mistaken, Barry Manilow won for. Well, I OK. Yeah. Barry's all right. Yeah. But, <laughs> Which song? Uh, it was I write not the song. Mandy. If I'm not mistaken. I write the songs. Okay, yeah. well, I, I understand why people love that song. I mean, it's, it's not my less, cup of tea, but you know, it's more. It's certainly not as heavy as what Gordon yeah. was talking about. Yeah, but you uh, know, Barry Barry did a good job too. You know, he indeed. he made a lot of people happy, so he wins too. Indeed, we've already talked about our favorite musical aspects of it, which is you know Pee Wee Steel and yeah. the, the Moog synthesizer, and then. Terry Clements came up with that delicious guitar riff that echoes throughout the whole song. Yeah. And it was just perfect. I mean, you, there's so nothing. Haunting. Else that, it really is. And it's one of those things where even if you remember nothing else about the song, you're going to remember that riff. Yeah. Because uh, it's just so beautiful. The people who played on it. Okay. You said Gene Martinek played the, the synthesizer. Yeah. And then I had Lightfoot doing vocals and acoustic guitars. Terry Clements played lead. Pee Wee Charles playing the pedal steel. Rick Haynes playing bass. And Barry Keane, who by that time had become a full-time member, uh, Lightfoot now was using a drummer on live performances, yeah, which he hadn't for years. I think Jim Gordon played on one song on this album. But that's it. That's the entire band right there. I- I've been taking guitar lessons for about a dozen years now from uh-huh. a former uh, student at the high school where I teach, uh, a brilliant musician named Daniel Yaritu. Mm-hmm. And I asked him one time, what about the drums? Because I'd seen a band do a song that I really liked and they didn't bring a drummer on stage with them or on tour. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked Danny, I said, hey, what do you think of drums? You know, And he says to me, drums are everything. Drums bring so much to a song. If the drums are good, the song is going to be good. You know, if the drums are bad or the the drums are missing, you know, you're going to miss it. So I think the drumming on this song is a perfect example of what Danny's talking about, that it brings so much, uh, so much power, so much oomph. And it's not overbearing. It's not Keith Moon. It's not John Bonham. Drummers I really enjoy, but it's a masterpiece of restraint. And the power that that drummer achieves with the accents that he puts in there is one of the reasons the song is so wonderful. The thing that I read about it, and I don't have the reference in front of me, but Barry Keane was sitting across the studio from Lightfoot when they were recording the basic track to it. And Keane said to Lightfoot, you know, what are you going to do? You know, how, how are you going to sort of Lightfoot said, I'll, I'll cue you, you know, I'll just nod at you. Yeah. So there was never any planning, you know, just saying, okay, well, this is what I want your fill to sound like. So I think it says volumes about yeah. Barry Keane and his instincts as a musician. 
Yeah, I agree. Okay, Marty. Now here comes the part where if you have your notes, feel free to cheat. If you don't, then you know we're gonna <laughs> see if we can get this. How many times has Gordon Lightfoot played this song in concert according to setlist.fm? <laughs> I didn't do my homework, Mike. I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher. We all we both you know are familiar with kids who don't do their homework. I will consult my internet source. <laughs> I'll write it a hundred times. Well, how many times uh, a year does he perform? I mean, the song's been out for about 40 years. Probably, uh, probably performs about uh, two, I'd guess at least 200 nights a year. So 800 times. Not bad. You know, that's actually pretty good. 892 times. Hey, hey. Oh, yeah. Pretty yeah. good. First time was at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Montreux, Switzerland. Oh, and I've sweet. Been, and I've, I haven't been to the festival, but I've been in that concert hall. And I have sung oh, wow. in that concert hall and I can just see the kind of impact that it would have mm. on a room like that. And then most Montreux. recently was the last gig that he did before he went and had surgery on his hand, which was at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa on July 22nd, 2021. Wow. Yeah. I saw him right before the pandemic in, uh, I guess it was 2019 in San Jose. Mm -hmm. So I didn't notice anything was wrong with his hand. So he had surgery, huh? Yeah. And it, that may have been carpal tunnel. It may have been, hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know the, the backstory on that, but I know that his gigs have been postponed because he's still oh. recuperating from that. Um, it's been re-recorded by at least 19 different artists, but most of the ones that I saw that had re-recorded it kind of obscure to, you know, a West coast folk music fan. Okay. So uh -huh. The ones that were vaguely familiar were Laura Cantrell, the Dandy Warhols, Perry Novak and Bob Volkman, and Robin Wakefield, and then a few other people that I had never heard of, quite honestly. I personally cannot imagine anyone, living or dead, doing a passable version of this. Um, I think it is so uniquely his that... I don't even want to imagine someone else, you know, it, it can't, it can't be improved upon. Yeah. The rest of us can try to do it justice when we sing it or play it on guitar or around a campfire or something like that. And that's a, a nice way to extend the life of a song. But yeah, the definitive version is Gordon Lightfoot's version. Have you heard any of the cover versions? No, but you know, to, to bring up the, the issue of covers, you know, sometimes a cover is better than the original sure. or it has a lot more powerful than the original. And a great example of that is Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower, a Bob Dylan song. And to the point where a lot of people have to be told that actually it's not Jimmy's original piece. You know, um, on that one, I'm going to have to part ways with you because yeah, I, you're heard, about the Dylan. I heard the Dylan version before I heard Jimi Hendrix and oh, okay. I just liked the stripped down version. There you go. You yeah. know, but, you know, that's to each their own. The only version of this, there was a parody of it done uh, in 1984. There was a comedy troupe called the Capitol Steps, and they do satire and things like that. And they did one called The Wreck of the Walter Fritz Mondale. Oh, man. Because, he, you know, the poor guy lost by this avalanche against Ronald Reagan. You know, well, he did win Minnesota, though. Only by about 2,000 votes. Well, yeah, so, it took yeah. a while. <laughs> but, but that I would like to hear. Marty, are there any other thoughts that you want to add into our discussion as we're wrapping up? Well, just that one of the things that we should probably mention is the unlikelihood of a song like this becoming a hit then or now. 
Yeah. Uh, it's such a powerful song, such a beautiful song. And the fact that it could become a hit is, I think, a testament to the openness of music programmers back in, say, the 1970s, that they could put something like this on the radio. And I just don't see this kind of thing happening now because everything has become so data-driven, demographic-driven, and I think it's a real loss. And I would like everybody to ask themselves, what kinds of things might we be missing out on because of this trend toward demographic research in choosing songs to be programmed on the radio and things like that? The fact is that this is a song that got in under the radar and it's a miracle that it did, and we're all better off for it. And I just want us all to sort of stay on the lookout for anything else that might do that again, or write letters or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Talk to the right people, because there's there are other great songs out there that deserve to be heard in the same way that this one was. And the fact that we still have this one is something to be eternally grateful for. Couldn't have said it better myself. Right on. Martin Brandt, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It was a joy to talk about this great song, and I'd you love know, to have you back again sometime. How often does something like this happen where people, somebody says to you, yeah, I, wanna, I want you to come and talk to me about music you know, or about yeah. our favorite song? You know, um, I, I, I wish I could just spend my whole life talking about my favorite songs. So this is a real treat to be invited to do this. I really want to thank you a lot, Mike. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will feature the return of my very first guest, Deb Radwan, and she and I will be talking about Gordon Lightfoot's song, Oh So Sweet, from his most recent solo album. Also, I'll be welcoming Kevin Hester back to the show soon, and he and I will be re-recording our discussion of I'm Not Supposed to Care. So until next time, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell it. We'll see you later. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.